Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire and this is The Great Famine Part 13. This podcast continues to look at more aspects of the story of the Great Famine in Dublin during the hardships of Black 47, one of the worst years of the Great Hunger. The episode contains two distinct parts, each of which look at different aspects of life in the city. The show begins with a look at Dublin prisons. When I was researching this, I stumbled across a really remarkable story of one family, the Nangles. So rather than talk about different prisons, I've structured this part of the podcast around their life. It's a really amazing account and it was this that actually delayed the production of the show. But I think it's been worth it. It's both a heartbreaking and remarkable tale that runs from Dublin across two continents, bringing to light a harrowing account of transportation during the famine. Then in the second half of the show, we will focus on the bizarre opening of a famous soup kitchen in Dublin early in 1847, something that heralded a huge shift in British policy towards Ireland. And this will nicely tee up the following episode, which looks at that policy change in greater detail. Now, before we begin, as always, I want to thank the patrons of this series, without whom it simply wouldn't be happening. So thanks to Michael Finn, Michael McFadden, Patrick O'Brien, Tash E, Jim Bridgens, Lisa Wallace, Kevin Finn, Scott Steinkirchner, Darren Smith, Basil Riggs and Seamus Sweeney. Now let's get on to the story of the Nangles and their journey through the Irish prison system in 1847. The last moment Anne Nangle ever saw her husband Brian was probably in the courtroom on what was a day that changed both their lives forever. The two faced charges of stealing food and when caught they were shown no sympathy despite the fact famine was ravaging Ireland. Anne was only 30, described as being five feet tall with blue eyes, brown hair and a fair complexion. But given the ordeal that lay ahead of her and her husband, even Anne's appearance was about to change. 
It was April the 3rd, 1847, during the darkest period of the Great Famine, and her court case had not gone well. The evidence against Anne was damning. She had been essentially caught in the act. Anne and her husband Brian had robbed two sheep from Daniel Lestrange, a well-off farmer in Gary Castle in County Offaly, a few weeks previously. They had butchered the sheep on the spot and then Anne had fled across the bog of Clonline to escape. Despite the fact it was four in the morning, by some misfortune or another, she was spotted by three men who pursued her. Burdened with two sheepskins and some mutton, Anne was quickly caught and then handed over to the police. While her husband Brian seems to have escaped from the scene of the crime, the case against him was nearly as compelling as that against Anne. Within hours of apprehending Anne, the police raided two houses. First, they called to the home of Kieran Collins and then to the Nangle house. Collins was out, but after a search, the constables turned up seven sheep trotters and some more freshly slaughtered mutton in the house. Then they went to the Nangle's home, two miles away, where Brian was still asleep. There they found wool and what was tantamount to a smoking gun in a case like this, blood on Brian's coat. The evidence against all three seemed compelling. Justice in the 19th century moved swiftly and within nine days they were brought before a judge and jury. The prosecution case against Anne was watertight. One of the constables was able to prove in court that the sheepskins in her possession when she had been caught had indeed belonged to Daniel Lestrange's flock. To seal her face, the police were then able to show that the footprints left in the field were identical to Anne's. Her defence presented nothing by way of a case and the jury retired. This court case was neither complex nor difficult and the jury returned with a decision in a few minutes. Unsurprisingly, they found Anne and Brian guilty but their neighbour, Kieran Collins, was pronounced not guilty. Once the judge set about the business of sentencing, it was obvious he was not in a forgiving or lenient mood. He began by pointing out that sheep stealing was increasing on a nightly basis. There was no doubt about this. Non-violent crime against property had increased by 164% in that year alone. Unfortunately for Anne and Brian, the judge decided he was going to make an example of them that would send out a clear message to those thinking of stealing sheep. Despite the fact they had committed the crime during the worst starvation in living memory, that Anne had no previous convictions and that the couple had a three-year-old infant, this had no impact on the judge. He showed no mercy. Brian and Anne were both sentenced to transportation for 10 years, the realities of which were crushing. Transportation was a particularly cruel system of imprisonment that had existed for centuries. It involved exporting prisoners to far-flung corners of the globe where they would serve out their sentences. Initially, the prison colonies had been in North America, but after American independence was won in the 1780s, this was brought to an abrupt end. Motivated by a desire to find a new penal colony as far from England as possible, the British had established prisons in Australia and through the early 19th century, thousands of Irish prisoners were shipped there where they served sentences in the searing heat. Anne and Brian Nangle did not even have comfort in the fact that they would endure this misfortune of forced exile together. Although sentenced in the same courtroom during the same trial, they were separated when sentenced as the prison system was strictly divided along gender lines. While the Nangles were sentenced on April 3rd, 1847, neither were transported immediately. Preparation for such a sentence usually took several months. 
Both were held in the same prison, Tullamore Jail, for over a month. While Brian was in the men's quarter, Anne brought her child Rory with her to the female quarters. On May the 31st, 1847, Annie Hope, they had of meeting again, began to wane. Anne and their son were the first to be moved. She was transferred to what was known as the Grange Gorman Convict Depot, a wing of the Dublin Female Penitentiary, reserved for women awaiting transportation. The female prison in Dublin was an enormous complex, famous for its 700-foot-long outer building, which can be seen in Grange Gorman today. While many people comment on its striking appearance, which is currently being renovated and transformed into a university, in the 19th century it was considered intimidating. Then, surrounded by walls, a visitor to Dublin in the 1830s saw it in very different terms. The general appearance of the facade is very imposing and calculated to produce in the mind of an approaching criminal an impression of hopeless incarceration and compel him to resign at once every idea of liberty unless deserved by a reformation of conduct. It was inside this compound that Anne Nangle joined other women from across Ireland who had been brought to Dublin awaiting transportation. They arrived in the city just as famine fever was reaching its peak and entering an institution of any kind was a risk. In the last episode we saw how debts in the North Dublin Union workhouse were soaring and a prison, theoretically at least, was even worse because at least you could leave a workhouse. Further to this, Grange Gorman Prison could not have been in a worse location given it was scarcely 100 metres from the back wall of the North Dublin Union workhouse where fever was raging. However, contrary to what we might expect, conditions inside the prison could not have been more different to those in the workhouse. Indeed, while Anne Nangle was facing a voyage across the globe in the coming months, that prison she found herself in was among the best-run institutions on the island and as strange as this may sound, it was possibly the best place to survive Black 47, the worst year of the famine. The Inspector General of Irish Prisons had conducted his annual inspection on February the 18th that year and had been impressed by what he called the high and superior order in which this prison is conducted. His view was borne out in statistics. Many histories of the famine have claimed that the death rate in Irish prisons during the Great Famine was enormous. At a glance, the increase in mortality was certainly alarming. Six had died in Irish prisons in 1845, 131 perished in 1846 and then 1,315 people died in 1847. However, when we break this down, a more nuanced picture emerges. Half of all the deaths in 1847 took place in just four prisons, with over 350 dying in Cork County Jail alone. Most prisons were far better. While they did witness an increase, they were far, far safer than most institutions. Indeed, in Grange Gorman, where Anne Nangle spent her last few weeks in Ireland, there were only 30 cases of fever through the entire year of 1847, none of which were fatal. In total, there were 18 deaths in the prison that year. A substantial increase to be sure, but given the death rate in other institutions soared, this is minuscule in comparison. Indeed, it was these conditions that contributed to a very unusual trend across Ireland during the Great Famine. That is, increasing numbers of people seeking to get into prison. While soaring crimes did lead to growing numbers of incarcerations, there's also evidence that some people just committed crime so they would be sent to prison. While the relative safety from disease inside the prisons may have motivated some, 
It was probably the availability of food which was considered to be better than that of the workhouse which proved alluring to many. That said, this does not seem to have been the case for Anne Nangle. She didn't want to be in Grange Gorman. She and many of her fellow inmates who had been sentenced to transportation did not see this as a better alternative to the famine. In Anne's case, her not guilty plea indicates she had no desire to be sentenced to the fate of transportation. Others mounted serious resistance to transportation. A few months before Anne Nangle had arrived in Dublin, there had been an attempted mass escape of around 30 to 40 male prisoners awaiting transportation from Newgate Prison in Dublin. Unfortunately, they had been foiled by the deputy governor after they had made a hole in the roof and fashioned a rope from bedding. Through May and June 1847, the convict depot in Grange Gorman Prison, where Anne Nangle was being held, began to fill up with other women sentenced to transportation. Many, like Anne, had been convicted of minor thefts of food. We can only imagine the bitterness and resentment these women must have felt. Once the prison ship arrived, they would almost certainly never see Ireland again. In mid-July, that fateful day arrived when the ship Waverley arrived in Dublin Bay. Anne and the other women were moved from the depot through Victoria and Dublin down to the Quays, a short enough walk and their last ever in Ireland. On July the 19th, 1847, the Waverley weighed anchor and set sail. Three months later, it had reached the far side of the world when it arrived in Van Diemen's Land on October the 25th. Anne Angle, now 31, was about to start a new life of sorts. At least the life she had known was over. Over 10,000 miles away, back in Tullamore Jail, her husband Brian still languished in prison. Presumably by this point he had been told that his wife had been moved to Dublin and he can only have feared the worst. He may well have still held out hope that he too would eventually be transported to Australia where he would get to meet his family again someday. However, contrary to popular perception, no Irish men were shipped to Australia between 1846 and 1848. While European settlement in Australia had begun as penal colonies, by the mid-19th century, free colonists were arriving in large numbers and convicts were no longer wanted. All transportation to New South Wales had stopped in 1840, leaving Van Diemen's Land, or Tasmania as it's known today, as the only region in Australia still accepting prisoners. By the mid-1840s, the large numbers being sent to this island created an administrative nightmare and to try and sort this problem, they stopped sending male convicts between 1846 and 1848. For the Nangles, this proved decisive and eliminated hopes they would ever see each other again. In 1848, Brian was indeed transferred to Dublin in order to be transported. However, his destination was not anywhere near Australia. By late January he had been joined by 119 other men being held in Smithfield and Kilmainham jails in Dublin. At the end of the month they were brought down the docks and put on a steamer on the quays. They were ferried down the coast to the port of Kingstown, today known as Dunleary, where the prison ship, the Bangalore, awaited them to take Brian even further from his wife Anne and their young son. First the Bangalore crossed to England where they took on board more prisoners Then it turned west into the Atlantic Ocean. For those of you who have listened to the Patrons podcast based on the account of William Smith, you can appreciate the horrors of an Atlantic crossing in midwinter. If you haven't signed up already, you can get that at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. 
Brian Nangle did not complete a full transatlantic voyage, but instead he and the other convicts were bound for Bermuda, a tiny island situated a thousand kilometres off the North Carolina coast. Considered idyllic today, the island was a living hell in the 1840s. Over five years later, in September 1853, Brian Nangle was still incarcerated there. He did not even have the luxury of being held in an actual prison. Instead, he, along with hundreds of others, were being held on the ship, the Medway, a prison hulk. That's a warship that had been refitted as a prison. Listed as a good prisoner, unsurprisingly, Brian had fallen ill. What the ultimate fate of the Nangles is, is unclear. There is a hint that Anne may have lived out her days tragically. While Brian languished in Bermuda, she was recommended for a conditional pardon in Australia in 1853. There's little mention of her after this, but in the early 1860s, a woman of the same name pops up frequently in records from Geelong, Australia. This Anne Nangle was a chronic alcoholic who was frequently imprisoned for drunken and disorderly behaviour. There's no mention of her son or of her husband Brian Nangle after 1853. The fate of the Nangle family is tragic, but it's one endured by thousands of Irish people during the Great Famine. As starvation increased, crime skyrocketed and many of those caught robbing food received similar sentences of transportation. Through 1847 alone, 2,185 Irish people suffered this fate, an experience that has endured in popular memory of the famine through song. Next, we move on to the second part of the show, which is very different. But first, I want to take a quick break. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. As I mentioned at the outset, this podcast has two distinct parts, and now we're going to look at what is one of the most bizarre and in many ways perverse chapters from the entire story of the Great Famine. The next episode is going to cover a major shift in British policy that took place in 1847, but we can't leave the story of the famine in Dublin without looking at what was the launch of that policy, an utterly farcical and pretty disturbing in many ways event. To say it was ill-conceived was an understatement. The policy, which I will look at in detail in the next podcast, involved the opening of soup kitchens across the island to feed the starving poor. However, the launch of sorts of this policy, which took place in Dublin, revealed that while the capital city may have been reeling from the effects of famine, the rich and powerful were incredibly removed and seemed to have little understanding and arguably compassion for the poor who were by this stage collapsing in the streets from disease and hunger. 
Now, a fitting place to begin this account is on March 19th, 1847, in the South Dublin Union Workhouse, now St James's Hospital in the city. On that day, the weekly meeting of the Board of Guardians was taking place. The guardians of the workhouse basically oversaw the running of the institution, and by March 1847, their meetings made for hard going. Like its counterpart on the north side of the river, the South Dublin Union workhouse was heavily overcrowded. There were over 2,300 people in the building and that week alone, 23 had died. At that meeting, the Board of Guardians heard a harrowing account of how children in some cases were lying two or more in a bed while suffering from dysentery. However, the meeting took an unusual twist when matters turned to the presence of an international celebrity in the room, the recently arrived French chef Alexis Sawyer. Sawyer was an unusual figure in the 19th century in that he was a celebrity chef in a world that didn't really embrace celebrity culture in the way we do today. Although only 37, Sawyer had published a series of cookbooks but also was the chef at the Reform Club in London where prominent members of the Liberal Party, who were of course the ruling party in Britain and Ireland at the time, supped on exquisite meals prepared by the Frenchman. Sawyer, to his credit, had become interested in famine relief in Ireland and when the Liberal government adopted a policy of soup kitchens in early 1847, he became heavily involved proposing not only recipes but then designed a model soup kitchen. In March he took this a step further and actually crossed to Ireland to launch this soup kitchen. Not long after his arrival in the city, the Board of Guardians of the South Dublin Union had invited them to their meeting so he could advise them on culinary matters. And that's why he found himself in the workhouse on March 19th. As their business concluded, Sawyer accompanied the Board of Guardians to the workhouse kitchen where a huge fat of soup was being prepared. After tasting the soup, Sawyer pronounced it the best charity soup he had tasted in the city, but qualified the remark saying it was overcooked, something that had ruined the flavour and damaged the nutritional qualities of the broth. He then told the cook of the workhouse to buy various ingredients and prep them, He promised to return the following Saturday where he would cook the same volume of soup using far less ingredients in a fraction of the time. He also promised his soup would be more nutritious. For a cash-strapped workhouse, this seemed ideal. However, we can only imagine the reaction of the cooks. They were preparing food for 2,300 starving people on a daily basis. And then this Sawyer swanned in, moaning about the flavour of the soup and how he could not only cook a better, more wholesome broth faster, but could also cut the costs by using less ingredients. Indeed, disgruntled cooks were by no means the only ones dubious of Sawyer. In the following days, when the Freeman's Journal received a letter commending the Frenchman, the newspaper editors doubted his claims to be able to make the nutritious soup using less ingredients. They noted, We have no faith in the magic that professes to convert a quart of water with the additions of one pennyworth of ingredients of beef and flour. Nevertheless, Alexis Sawyer was undeterred. A few days later, the Frenchman, now the talk of the town and indeed the national press, returned to make his famous soup in the South Dublin Union workhouse. Impressively, in the space of two hours, he did make his soup but it did not go as smoothly as the renowned chef had anticipated. The broth did not thicken enough, even though Sawyer had added an extra 10 pounds of flour, which is widely used in cooking as a thickening agent. Sawyer himself accepted no responsibility, instead claiming the flour had been damp. However, the workhouse physician, Dr McKeown, who was present, was not convinced. At the next meeting of the Board of Guardians, a few days later, he castigated the French chef. McKeown had tasted the soup and pronounced it 
completely sour, not nutritious, and in fact was unfit for human consumption. This was widely reported in the press and was not what Sawyer wanted. He had yet to launch his model soup kitchen, the primary reason he had come to Ireland. But he was becoming embroiled in a press controversy. Nevertheless, preparation for his kitchen was well underway and some aspects were impressive to say the least. In terms of organising kitchens, Sawyer was an innovator without doubt. His culinary skills were only part of the reason he had gained fame as a chef. When he had taken over the kitchens in the Liberal Club, he had revolutionised the way they had been laid out. He then used this experience to build his model soup kitchen on a green area in front of the Royal Barracks in Dublin, now Collins Barracks today, an area known as the Croppies Acre. However skillful he may have been, his launch of that soup kitchen could probably not have been carried out in worse fashion, perhaps because he had received such criticism, or perhaps because celebrities cannot resist the lure of limelight, Sawyer planned a major launch of his kitchen, no matter how inappropriate this was. In late March 1847, as construction of the kitchen neared an end at the Croppies Acre, invitations were prepared for a gala opening. This opening took place on April 5th, 1847, in a style any modern celebrity would be proud of. Alexis Sawyer had not only invited the city press, but also the great and good of Dublin society. However, little thought seems to have been given as to how this event would be perceived and how people would react. To understand why people might have mixed reactions to a gala opening of a soup kitchen, it's worth looking at the context of the event which took place on Easter Monday, 1847. As we saw in the last episode, by this date, the famine was reaching one of its most horrific periods. By that spring, hundreds of thousands of people had already died and many more were clearly going to die. Dublin by no means the worst part of the island, was still suffering. Thousands in the city had contracted famine fever and starvation was also taking its toll. While the establishment of soup kitchens under a new British policy was in the round to be welcomed, it was hardly something to celebrate. Given the overall British policy to that date had been disastrous and if anything exacerbated the suffering. Therefore, it was in an extremely sombre Dublin on Easter Monday 1847 that the city press made their way to the model soup kitchen where they were astounded by what they witnessed. The Freeman's Journal was by no means alone when they castigated the entire event describing it as revolting. Indeed, they were so outraged that they refused to print, as was customary for such events, a detailed article of what took place and who attended. Instead, they printed what they called a solemn protest in the form of a lengthy critique of the event. In the following days, news did emerge of what happened and it's easy to see why the Freeman's Journal were so outraged. The Belfast newsletter provided its readers with details. The event seems to have been like a celebration of sorts. The Lord Lieutenant, the representative of the British government, had arrived amid pomp and ceremony, including a military salute. Other notables, including the Lord Mayor of Dublin, the Earl of Charlemont, the Earl of Roden, and the Commander-in-Chief of the British Army in Ireland, Sir Edward Blakeney, had all attended. As flags adorned the tent, it appears that Sawyer and some of those in attendance had an entirely inappropriate triumphalist and celebratory mood. All in all, there were about a 100 notables from Dublin at this launch. While crowds of literally starving people looked on, the wealthy spectators and officials were ushered in to marvel at Sawyer's creation before anyone was fed. The rich were then given a sample of the food available and then, in what was one of the most critiqued aspects of the entire day, 
they made way for a select group of a hundred paupers from the Mendicity Institute who were brought into the tent almost as an example of how it would work. The Freeman's Journal asked, Could the lords and ladies and the wearers of cockatoo feathers enjoy what they simperingly called the gay scene without the treat of having some 100 Irish beggars exhibited before them and demonstrate what ravening hunger will make the image of God submit to? It had all the hallmarks of a human zoo of sorts. It was not until six o'clock in the evening that the general crowd gathered were brought in and fed. While the entire event was roundly criticised with good reason, the soup kitchen itself was impressive. Sawyer was unquestionably a man who liked attention and publicity, but he had thought out the practicalities, and the kitchen was designed to feed as many as 1,000 people per hour. That said, the actual nutritional value of the soup was another matter entirely. Sawyer had devised recipes along the lines of the one he had cooked in the South Dublin Union workhouse, whereby he cut costs dramatically but claimed the soup was highly nutritious. This is questionable. One of his most famous recipes included 250 grams of leg beef, two onions, 250 grams of flour, 250 grams of pearl barley, 100 grams of salt and 15 grams of brown sugar mixed with 9 litres of water. That's basically the equivalent of 16 pints of water. The dietary value of the meat and vegetables when watered down to this extent is highly questionable. While Alexis Sawyer had probably stumbled into an Ireland he scarcely understood and then fumbled from controversy to controversy, his farewell was equally tactless. Before he left, he was toasted at a sumptuous dinner and then gifted an ornate snuff box specially crafted by a Dublin jeweller. When he arrived in London, he was treated to a dinner with 150 wealthy individuals eating at a table with gold and silver cutlery. The actions of Alexis Sawyer would eventually become one of the most remembered aspects of the entire famine in Dublin. However, his ill-conceived trip to the city obscured, to an extent, the real reason he had come, to highlight the new British policy. That was to roll out soup kitchens around the country, many of which were already up and running by this stage. This was only part of a wider strategy, one with far-reaching consequences and certainly not all good. We'll look at that in detail in the next show. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, Sloan. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. 